I'm Sean Eckford, one of the board members here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcasts. If you've listened before, you know I sometimes like to find a theme in the day's presentations. Well, this year, it just has to be... We're awfully glad to be back. As board president John Lucier said, as he paused just before introducing Ivan Coyote Thursday night, I just want to take it all in. Ivan was glad to be back, too. I'm so, so grateful and happy to be here. What a fantastic way to... This is my first big, um, my first big crowd since, uh, since it all went down, and and it's my birthday, and it's like a super moon, and there's phosphorescence, and it's a fucking high tide, and there's meteor showers. No big deal. Ivan then took us on a raucous journey through northern BC and Yukon, including some old childhood haunts. Keep on driving past New Way, gravel crushing on your left. Stop for a second there when Poplar Street just juts off to the right. There never used to be a gate here or a private property sign or anything. Everybody just called this Hector Lang's lot. This is where my dad rented his first shop. It's where he built his second bigger shop that he worked in until he retired and sold off most of his tools. And there was a grease-stained gang of us in the 70s. All the welders' daughters and mechanic sons and miners' kids who used to play in and on and around all the idle heavy equipment and discarded dump truck tires and expired and empty school buses and rusting muscle cars in the junkyard. It was super fun and excellently dangerous all the time and I would do it all over again in a hot minute but no one these days would ever allow it to happen. I think it's safe to say, no pun intended, that the days of letting your children play alone all day on giant rusty metal objects full of gasoline and sharp edges are in the rearview mirror. Come Friday morning, it was time for another journey, as Sam Weeb took us into a Vancouver most of us probably don't recognize, through the eyes of his character, private detective Dave Wakeland. So the main character in this book is named Dave Wakeland, and he is a Vancouver PI. Um, I don't know if any of you remember the show The Rockford Files. Dave is kind of the millennial Jim Rockford. Or he's the contemporary Philip Marlowe. He is someone who is good with their fists, he's someone with courage and decency, the kind of person that you want on your side, the kind of person who sticks up for the underdog. I've been writing this character for over a decade now. The first book came out in 2016, but the seeds of that were planted long ago. I really wanted to write a private eye novel about Vancouver. I wanted to write in the tradition that I love, which is the tradition of the first-person detective story. People like Raymond Chandler, Sue Grafton, Walter Mosley, Dashiell Hammett. I love all of those authors. And I really wanted to write about Vancouver. Um, I grew up there. I'm actually one of the very few people born in Vancouver. So I've grown up there and you know, it's, it's a very fraught place. As Lonnie said, it, uh, it's a place that I think has two faces to it. On one hand, it is the face of the Olympics, Lululemon, orcas in the water, beautiful scenery, Stanley Park, all of these great things. But on the other hand, it's a very troubled place. There is a long history of gendered violence, specifically against sex workers. 
There's a long history of racism. There's a long history of colonial violence. It's, it's built on the unceded territories of three different nations. And so Vancouver's history is very complex, very bloody. And that's all the stuff that's sort of left off the, the tourist brochures. Now, as Sam was discussing Dave's latest efforts to avoid a case that he had no interest in, he had to dodge an attempted bombardment from the pigeons who've now decided to make the pavilion their home. That's by way of explaining his answer to my first question after his presentation. I love it. I got here yesterday and, uh, I mean, it's it's got a really active uh, audience and a very active bird population. <laughs> I think the pigeons are going to evolve as a theme as we go through. I'm, I'm hoping they can like do some of the, the work on the books now. <laughs> uh, maybe they can do the outlining or some of the revisions. That would be great. I tend to uh, watch very closely the audience questions because I'm always curious to see what they come up with. And I noticed you got a lot of questions about craft, about the writing craft. Is that something you think happens more to mystery writers than and and detective type writers than others or i think there are fewer mystery writing teachers so that the people who are interested in it have fewer avenues to get advice i i also think that with poets and you know memoirists people like that people erroneously think that they just make it all up or it's all just a feeling <laughs> they sort of downplay the work they put in and maybe they overplay the work that I put in. So good for me, bad for them. I find that I'm always a little trepidatious when I go into reading a book set in a place where I've lived or I know really well. Do you find that? If, if I'm reading a book that's set in Vancouver, there's definitely a, a more critical part. But when it works, it works better. Like when you get a TV show that's set in Vancouver, like Da Vinci's Inquest, you know, that's been off the air for 10, 15 years, and people still talk about it. I, I think that it's, it's important to capture the spirit of the place, but if you can do that, then the people who know that place will appreciate it. As well as pigeons, I think an emerging theme this year is just, golly, we're all awfully glad to be back doing this sort of thing. Have you uh, had much of a chance yet to, to get out and about to events like this since the plague has eased off a bit? No, this is t uh, the second one. I did the Bowen Island Writers' Fest uh, last weekend, and I've got another thing in um, next March, but that's it. Um, oh, and I did the Vancouver Writers' Fest last year. But it's, you know, it, it's very weird with the pandemic because I have done a lot of events, and then I had two years of doing nothing. So now it's both over-familiar and terrifyingly new at the same time. Do you find the audiences have, are a little more enthusiastic after not having been able to come to an event like this? Definitely, while? definitely. And I think that we're just re-figuring re out how, how these events go. And I think that that's really exciting. Okay, so let's see how far I can get away with this journey theme. Globe and Mail health reporter and author of Neglected No More, Andre Picard, gave us a tour, and not always a pretty one, of Canada's elder care system. In Canadian healthcare, it seems, no screw-up, no matter how big or how small, how sickening or deadly, is ever anyone's fault. It's always the fault of the system. So let's fix the, fix the damn system. That is my book in a nutshell. In a sentence, let's fix the damn system. And if you're reading the news today, it's more relevant than ever. 
So Neglected No Borer isn't a book about COVID-19, except peripherally. It's a plea to stop dehumanizing elders, to reimagine long-term care. It tells of families frustrated by their inability to access the care their loved ones want, the angst of dedicated workers who don't have the time or resources to deliver the care elders want and need, and how a combination of history, changing demographics, political inertia, and a health system with other priorities created a proverbial perfect storm that allowed a pathogen to ravage a vulnerable population. It's not a call for heads to roll that will never roll. It's a stark expose of what's wrong and a rough blueprint about what we need to do to fix elder care. Andre made this prediction during his presentation. And I know the first question, the question period will be about private versus not-for-profit care, so I'll save that. I'll allow you the joy of asking me that. Now, it didn't play out that way, so I picked up the ball when we sat down after he was done. Where were you going to go if you got the question about public versus private in the elder care system? Yeah, I think the issue of private and public, the problem is we make it a dichotomy, and I think it's more complicated than that. I think the reality is that every system has an element of private and public care. All the good systems in the world have that. Canada, 30% of our care is private. We have one of the highest rates in the world. So to me, the question is, should, is not should we have private care, it's what does the public uh, Medicare basket of services include. So what's covered publicly, and then by default, what's covered privately. I think we just have to have much more clarity in that. And the problem now is we just kind of fudge it. And so we have the worst of both worlds. People are not sure what's covered. It varies by province. And then, you know, the same with private. It allows a, the, pub, the private system go in and do stuff that's probably not appropriate and have unfair advantages, etc. So I think, to me, that's the question I want asked is, what is covered by Medicare? And once we do that, it's easier to figure out the, what's covered privately. Now, the other question I always ask everyone is, how are you enjoying the festival? How is it to be out and about again? <laughs> oh, it's lovely. It's nice to get out. It's lovely to be on the Sunshine Coast, which is really beautiful, and to be in a community where I think people are very health conscious, you know, from based on where you live. I know there's a lot of retired doctors and nurses who live here. So I think it's a really, really good audience, a really great festival, and really super well organized. So it's really a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, overall, just in terms of the fact that, you know, because of what's been happening with, with COVID and stuff, there hasn't been these opportunities to be in the public in, until really this last few months. You know, are you at all nervous about it? Being as uh, some people will point you as a bit of a resident expert on the topic. You know, I'm conscious of, of COVID. I think we have to be aware of it, that it could get worse. But I think we, I've said from, I've been writing about this for two and a half years, we have to continue to live our lives, but not live them recklessly. So we have to adapt as we adapt to every other threat in society. We have to figure out how to live as safely as possible, but not be hermits. Uh, so it's all about balance, just like healthcare is about balancing. You know, we want to live good lives and we, we're going to take risks. That how, that's how you have fun, but then you do them to a reasonable extent. Later in the afternoon, the journey Jesse Wente took us on was his own, as chronicled in Unreconciled, Family, Truth, and Indigenous Resistance. I'm optimistic because I see in my children and Indigenous youth across Canada just how tough and resilient we are. And I'm optimistic because more and more Canadians seem to know that great change is required. The murder of George Floyd in May 2020 felt like a last straw when Floyd's death was soon followed in Canada by the deaths of two First Nations people during interactions with police, even as people took to the streets to protest police violence, it felt as though the world was collapsing. 
Black and indigenous people face state violence every single day. Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and let's be realistic, after the pandemic too. But coming during the lockdown, while black and indigenous people were already being more severely affected by COVID-19 than other communities, those particular acts of violence felt like salt poured on an open wound. Maybe that's why we immediately saw public protest on an unrivaled scale. Why so many were willing to risk their health and safety to take to the streets to demand change. Or maybe it was that people who were locked down, hiding from a virus, had less to distract them and more time to listen, more time to march, more time to learn, more time to understand. Or it was the pandemic itself, exposing it has so much of the rot that underlies the Western capitalist system, the degradation of the environment, of people's rights, and very lives in the service of shareholder gain, and the sick belief that all that exploitation is somehow sustainable when all the evidence tells us it is not. The pandemic gave us the time and space to think while simultaneously delivering the same clear message. Just stop. Stop the endless consumption. Stop the endless work to feed that consumption. Stop the hoarding of everything by so few. Stop the police. Stop them from killing us. Stop them from provoking us in order to imprison us. Stop the nationalism that blinds so many to the failure and corruption of their leaders, that sows division when we must need to rely on one another. Stop keeping people poor and sick. Just stop. These systems won't work to eradicate indigenous life and culture. We are too strong. And they won't work to keep people happy, fulfilled, and safe. They are too weak. They need to stop. Something new needs to take their place. We need change. What I'm asking now is for all of you to help bring it about, to cast aside your fear of an unknown future and embrace this moment as an opportunity to build the country that Canada has always aspired to be, the one it pretends to be, one that recognizes the inevitable failure built into colonialism, one that recognizes Indigenous sovereignty as crucial to the realization of Canadian sovereignty. This is the Canada our ancestors envisioned when they signed the Peace and Friendship Treaties, a collective of nations, living as they want, sharing the land mutually. I know that vision can be realized not because I have faith in Canada, but because I believe in its people. Our systems and structures need to be dismantled and replaced, but these are problems created by humans, and they can be solved by humans. In social justice movements across North America, we see engaged and imaginative young people who are fighting for a truly equitable vision of society. Like them, we can build new relationships and in doing so, transform this nation into something that better reflects our values, our thoughts, ourselves. We can't rely on governments, institutions, or companies to do this. They won't. Only we, the people, can and must solve this most human of problems. Despite all that's been done to Indigenous peoples, despite all that continues to be done to us, and will be done to us today and tomorrow, we were here before Canada, and we'll be here long after it. Show us that the myth of this country can be replaced by truth, because frankly, we have shown you enough. It's your turn. So as I'm recording this, we're in the office, getting ready for J.L. Richardson and Joshua Whitehead this evening. Joshua's presentation will be another first for us, although we weren't expecting it to be. Circumstances prevented Joshua from getting here in person. So, in a way that seems to symbolize the current times, he'll be joining us remotely. We'll let you know how it worked out. 
And now before we go, let's go back to Andre Picard. He's going to be on stage Sunday morning as well for a panel we're calling All the News That's Fit to Print. It's moderated by broadcaster and UBC professor Catherine Gretzinger. I think, you know, during COVID, uh, journalism has become really important uh, because people are looking for information on, you know, the worst pandemic in a century. And then the flip side of it being journalism is under attack more than ever. There's uh, a epidemic of misinformation that's probably worse than the epidemic of COVID in the end uh, because it's going to impact people's health in many ways. So I think that we have to talk about this stuff quite publicly and uh, make the public aware of, you know, if you if journalism is threatened, I think democracy is threatened. So we really have to talk about it in those stark terms. Catherine Gretzinger is probably a name you recognize. She's an old hand at presenting festival events, including one coming up Saturday with Kamal Al-Salehli. And seeing as it's been a couple of years since we've had a full pavilion audience with Q&A and the whole works, I thought it would be worth closing by revisiting some advice she gave me during the 2017 festival on asking a really good question. They should ask a hardworking, open-ended question. They should pause and think, what do I want to know? And then they should ask their question. Um, They should ask one question at a time. Uh, They should not ask a question that drives a guest into a box. They should ask a question that opens a window. In some events, people stand up to tell their own story, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's particularly helpful. Um, It's supposed to be about the author that's on the stage. So just remember, the event is about the author that's on the stage. The luxury of having an open microphone and being able to ask a question is to ask one that other people will benefit from, not just you. So that's it for our first podcast of Festival 2022. If you want to find out what's going on here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts, you can visit us online at writersfestival.ca or drop by Rockwood in downtown Seashell. Seashell.